You can't heal a body you hate. You cannot shame your way into health and wellness. You cannot stress and strive your way into health and wellness. So all of this has to come from an air of grace and lightness. Living a healthy, balanced life as a mom can sometimes feel impossible. With tiny mouths to feed, butts to wipe, and so many things vying for our attention, it can be easy to feel like we're in an on-again, off-again relationship with healthy living. But it doesn't have to feel this way. I believe every mom is a super mom, and you deserve to feel like one too, and you don't have to go on another diet to do it. Join me, Kristen Dovniak, holistic nutritionist and certified intuitive eating counselor for conversations on what it means to live a healthy, balanced life. I want to help you uncomplicate eating, improve your relationship with food, and live like the supermama I know you are. Hey friends, welcome back to the Healthy Balance Mama podcast. One of the health topics that I have been asked the most about is to address inflammation. And as someone who has a background in nutrition, I definitely know some baseline information about inflammation because as many of us know, inflammation is the root cause of a lot of diseases and chronic health conditions. But managing inflammation at the baseline level and finding what works for us in terms of our health can be really difficult. It can be really difficult to do on our own, and it can be really difficult if we're healing our relationship with food and trying to figure out how dealing with chronic health conditions really plays a role when we are also trying to find freedom with food and really nourish our bodies in a way that they feel good, they're healthy, and they're vibrant, but without restriction. And so finding that middle ground, that gray area where we are finding freedom and peace with food, but nourishing our bodies in the way that they really desire, reducing inflammation and feeling good on a daily basis and living according to our values, which for many of us is living a healthy life. It can be difficult, but it's certainly not impossible. And that is why I wanted to have Dr. Will Cole on, who's a leading functional medicine expert, to talk to us about inflammation. He wrote a book called The Inflammation Spectrum which I've read and I really love his non-dogmatic approach to managing inflammation and finding what works for you and your unique bio-individual body. So I asked him to come on. I can't believe he agreed and we had an incredible conversation. So I'm really excited to share that with you today. For those of you who don't already know him, Dr. Will Cole is a leading functional medicine expert. He consults people all around the world via webcam at drwillcole.com and locally in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He specializes in clinically investigating underlying factors of chronic disease and customizing health programs for thyroid issues, autoimmune conditions, hormonal dysfunctions, digestive disorders, and brain problems. Dr. Cole was named one of the top 50 functional medicine and integrative doctors in the nation and is a health expert for Mind, Body, Green, and Goop. Dr. Cole is the author of the book, The Inflammation Spectrum, in which he explores how inflammation exists on a spectrum within the body, the various systems it can affect, and how you can discover your individual food triggers to overcome chronic inflammation. He's also the author of Ketotarian, in which he melds the powerful benefits of a ketogenic diet with a plant-based one. 
I think many of you are going to find this to be a really interesting and enlightening conversation. I hope it helps many of you who are struggling with chronic health conditions and really want to approach it in a way that is nourishing, but also with the end goal, and we talk about this in the episode, of finding freedom with food and learning how to better tap into your intuition without being bogged down by inflammation and health issues. So I think Dr. Cole's approach is a really unique one. And I think you'll gain a lot of value and nuggets from this conversation that we had. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Will Cole. Hi, Dr. Cole. Welcome to the Healthy Balance Mama podcast. Thank you so much for being on. Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited. Thanks for having me. I am so thrilled to talk about the topic of inflammation with my listeners. It's something we haven't covered yet. Um, And because I am the healthy, balanced mama, and I really want to share health in a way that's accessible for a lot of different people, whatever their health concerns are, um, I think it's going to be a really great conversation. Um, But I just want to start with a quick icebreaker. What do you drink first thing in the morning before anything else? Uh, that's a good question. I well, I typically drink Earl Grey tea first thing in the morning um, because I, I'll do time restricted feeding or intermittent fasting in the morning. And the reason I drink Earl Grey tea and any tea with you know uh, the the comp the catechins the anti the polyphenols the antioxidants is fine like green tea black tea white tea is fine, but Earl Grey tea is a black tea with bergamot in it. Uh, if you're getting the real bergamot, which is a citrus from Calabria in Italy. And it's been shown, uh, bergamot has been shown to increase something called autophagy. It's basically cellular recycling. It's the, uh, I mean, you know this, but it's cellular renewal. Think of it as sort of your anti-aging, anti-disease, anti-inflammatory pathways that uh, you can allow your body to upregulate or increase your body's ability and, and optimize the autophagy pathways. But fasting does that as well. So I'm sort of leveraging the benefits of fasting, amplifying the benefits of fasting with Earl Grey tea in the morning. So that's what I drink. That's so cool. And it's so funny that you mentioned bergamot because I had never even heard of bergamot. I studied abroad in Calabria in college, and I've actually talked about it a few times here on the podcast. And I had no idea that it was even a citrus fruit. I just knew that it was part of Earl Grey tea, and I had no idea that it contributed to autophagy. So that's very cool to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Hey. You'll get super nerdy with me. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love that. I am definitely here for that. (laughs) So I'm sure, and I already read your bio, um, many of my listeners are probably familiar with your work, but can you just briefly share what you do, who you are, and what you're passionate about bringing to the world? Mm, uh, thank you for letting me talk about that. I mean, I am passionate and my heart and my, my love is really to, at least professionally, I should say, is to immerse myself into complicated cases. My day job is consulting patients around the world via webcam and giving them a functional medicine perspective on their health. So the main uh, core of patients that we have that we focus our time with uh, have some sort of autoimmune issue. Uh, and there's somewhere on this autoimmune inflammation spectrum that I talk about, um, whether they, they may be diagnosed with a, like a diagnosable ICD-10, like diagnosable autoimmune disease, or they have autoimmune components. So whether that's Hashimoto's, autoimmune thyroiditis, or it is you know MS, neurological issues, it could be chronic fatigue syndrome, 
infestations uh, of autoimmunity. But so that's what my love is, is really to make functional medicine accessible and affordable to people around the world. And so from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, during the week, uh, that's I'm consul I'm talking to people like we're talking right now via webcam um, and getting them labs drop shipped to their town, wherever they're at. And uh, I'm also giving them this guidance and and monitoring their case over over months and giving them the insight that they need as to why they feel the way that they do so that's my love that's my main passion professionally and i have an amazing team here at the clinic where we can be collaborative together with ideas and giving them the best curated functional medicine experience to, uh, tailored to them so I love my team, and I, that's what I really focus on. And I, I've written books about this stuff that I do. But the books are just extensions of what I've seen uh, consulting patients. So I've written Ketotarian, which is my first book. It's a mostly plant-based ketogenic book, just kind of explaining the science around that. And then um, The Inflammation Spectrum, which is my most recent book, uh, talking about inflammation as it relates to lots of different things. Uh, autoimmunity only being one of them so that's 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 my uh that's my uh my passion yeah I love that you are so passionate about working with one-on-one -on -one clients after, you know, having a couple successful books. And I know you work with some big companies like Mind Body Green and Goop. It's really cool to hear that, like, your number one passion is helping individuals. And you help individuals through your books, but also working with those those one-on-one -on -one patients. So I think that's so cool. So Thank you so much. Yeah. You already shared this a little bit, um, but can you really kind of do a little bit of a deeper dive into, for those of my listeners who don't know, how do you, how does functional medicine differ from conventional medicine? So functional medicine, another word for that's integrative medicine or systems medicine. So we're looking at the interconnected systems of the body that uh, are interplaying, that are giving rise when they're in working in, a, in balance and synergistic balance, they will give rise to optimal vibrant health and people feeling fantastic. And then when they're out of balance, they will breed health problems. And the, I mean, I've been doing the telehealth, telemedicine consulting online for since the beginning of my practice, since 11, 11 years. When I first started that, it really was born out of me writing about it and talking about it online. And there weren't people in their own towns or, or there were, and they just were looking for someone that had, had experience in that space. Um, it's changed a lot over the past 11 years. But, I mean, back then it really was few and far between of us talking about this. Now the Cleveland Clinic has a functional medicine center. I mean, it's there's a lot more uh, more of us in this space, which is awesome because there's so many millions and millions and millions of people, no exaggeration. I mean, it's a lot of people that really need us. Uh, and we there's not enough hours in the day to help all the people that need help. So we need more people in this space. But I love the fact that it's gotten more mainstream. Institutions like the, like the Cleveland Clinic and other similar uh, hospitals and conventional medical institutions are now opening functional and integrative medicine centers talking about these things that I've talked about for the past 11 years. Um, but if I had to boil it down, what's the, what's the difference between what I do in functional medicine and conventional medicine? First thing is we interpret labs using a thinner reference range. So anybody that's listening will know when I 
get this lab, there's my number, and then there's this reference range, this X to Y interval of numbers, and they're comparing me to that number range. We get that reference range that you're being compared to from a statistical bell curve average of people who go to that specific lab. And people that are listening will also know if they go to different labs, they may see that reference range vary from lab to lab. It's not standardized for the most part. Well, why is it? What is it based on? Well, it's based on the people of that population that they're, they're comparing. Well, who are the people that are predominantly going to labs? They're people with health problems. So there's a lot of people that go to the doctor. They know intuitively, like, this isn't normal for me. I have to find out why I feel the way that I do. And they get the labs ran, and the doctor says, everything's fine. You're quote-unquote normal. What they're unintentionally t being told by their doctor is you're a lot like the other people with health problems that we're comparing you to, and we're equating common with normal. Just because something's common doesn't necessarily mean it's normal. You know, ubiquity doesn't necessarily equate with normalcy. And chronic health problems, hormonal problems, autoimmune issues, chronic inflammatory metabolic issues, those are very ubiquitous. But just because it's ubiquitous doesn't mean we should settle for it. And it doesn't explain how you can feel fantastic. So if in functional medicine we're taking people with health problems <clears throat> out of that reference range, so we are looking at the functional range, where your body is functioning the best. That's where functional medicine gets its name. So it's a thinner range, a thinner interval of numbers within that larger reference range of where people that live long, healthy, vibrant lives live. Uh, on, and, and that applies to all biomarkers, whether that's thyroid hormones or inflammation markers or other hormonal markers or any metabolic markers, we are looking at optimal health uh, and or the functional range. So that's the first thing. We're interpreting labs, looking and comparing you to optimal health, not just the average of people who go to labs. The second thing we do is we run more comprehensive labs. So there's not, um, like for example, for the thyroid, they'll typically just run a TSH and a T4 for thyroid markers. A thyroid stimulating hormone, which is a pituitary hormone, and then maybe the T4. Uh, and that's all that they need to give you levothyroxine or synthroid or some th sort of thyroid replacement hormone. Okay, that's fine, but it's an incomplete perspective. Your thyroid is way more complex than just that. So we have to look at your total T4 and total T3 and free T3 and free T4 and thyroid antibodies to rule out the autoimmune Hashimoto's or Graves disease. And then looking at reverse T3, which is the analog. And we have to understand, okay, 80% of the thyroid is converted in the liver. 20% is converted in the gut. We have to look at liver and gut health. So my point is you cannot be so reductionist and say, well, I just need to see if the TSH is normal to give you Synthroid. Well, you're a lot more complex than just that. So we have to look at all the different pieces of the puzzle that explain why somebody feels the way that they do. And then there's great mimickers in these areas too. It may not be a thyroid issue. It may be something mimicking the thyroid that we have to look there as well. So that's the second thing we do. Uh, we run more comprehensive labs to give evidence-based objective data as to the root reasons. What's the root causes of why somebody's dealing with their problems, whether that's gut problems or toxicity or chronic viral infections or hormonal, whatever the problem is. We want to take a good health history, comprehensive health history to, f to determine what labs are the most relevant for you. And then we realize we're all created differently. Differently, There's not a cookie cutter, one size fits all approach to getting well. And so it's really the, the duality of functional medicine is the science and the art. And the science is what I just said. The art of it is knowing how to make this realistic and knowing how to weave this in somebody's life to see this sustainable. 
um, and and listen to them and really hear them to hear the story behind the the person that's gone through this. So that's that's in a nutshell what functional medicine is. But as you can tell, I could talk about this way too long. <laughs> but it's what I love and what I'm passionate about. No, I love that. And I have seen so much benefit in my own life personally from functional medicine. Um, I've had a couple health conditions that were sort of, I mean, the first one was I had some gut issues um, years and years ago. Now it was almost a decade ago that lasted for quite a long time and they all came to a head and I, you know, went to the conventional medicine doctors going like, hey, really, I'm having really scary symptoms that are indicative of something really severe. And they did all the tests and they were like, eh, you've just got IBS. And I'm like, yeah, I get that I've got IBS, but I need to figure out how to solve this. And I went to a clinical nutritionist who's now a functional nutritionist, and he really helped guide me through more lab tests and digging deeper and really getting to the root cause of what was going on, which I had never experienced before, even though I had nutrition training. And you'd think with nutrition training, you would get training on the gut. And I, uh, beyond basic nutrition, uh, like your basic anatomy, I did not know very much about the gut. And that's just kind of one example where it was really fascinating just digging deeper and getting to that root cause. And that was the first time I had ever experienced somebody going, okay, let's really go deeper and let's really figure out what's going on, not just on the surface level. So I'm passionate about it too. So I think that's that's so cool. Great. So I want to dig into inflammation. And I think that's that's the biggest request I've gotten from my community in terms of the health side of things, because inflammation in itself is a really huge topic. And I, like I told you before we hopped on, I really wanted to get an expert, and that's you, um, to really explain inflammation in a tangible way. And I think that in your, in your book, The Inflammation Spectrum, you do this very much. Um, so I'm wondering if you can just kind of explain at a baseline level, what is inflammation and what are maybe some, I know there's plenty of them, but what are maybe some common symptoms that might be associated with inflammation? Yeah, it's such a, an important topic because you're right, it is impacting so many people. And you look at the statistics, the amount of chronic inflammatory health problems that people are going through, it's quite commonplace. Uh, but again, just because something's common doesn't necessarily mean it's normal. These are largely improvable, overcomable supportable, healable things. Uh, so this inflammation, you're right, it's a quite a, a, a nebulous term in the sense of people are like kind of abstractly understanding it, but they're not really fully grasping it. And they maybe think of uh, a swollen ankle, like if they hurt their 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 leg, right, or they're a swollen knee, they have an injury, a sporting injury, or they think of a migraine, or they think of some redness on the skin. Yes, those are all inflammation, that is true. Those are That's what what's considered acute inflammation. When the word inflammation is thrown around in the health wellness blogosphere, typically what they're referring to is chronic inflammation, which is different from acute inflammation, which is, you know, inflammation inherently is actually a very important part of our body. It's not inherently bad. It fights viruses, it fights bacteria, it heals wounds, it heals injuries. It's an important part. It gets blood to the area and it's it's needed to heal things. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is with inflammation is thrown out of balance perpetually. That's the problem. Chronic, diffuse, low-grade inflammation is the underlying root commonality between just about every health problem under the sun. From autoimmune conditions, from to diabetes, cancer, heart disease, to now research is looking at inflammation's role in mental health. You know, in the West, we like to separate 
mental health from physical health. But in truth, mental health is physical health. And our brain is part of our body. It's an organ for people that are wondering. <laughs> and it, 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 there's things that can happen. There's things that happen to our brain that impact our thoughts and emotions and the way we think and all this, all of, all of the facets of mental health. And it's a field of healthcare called the cytokine model of cognitive function. It's basically cytokines are pro-inflammatory cells. So it's the researchers are looking at how inflammation is impacting mental health, impacting how our brains work. So, and then look, you look at chronic fatigue, ADD, ADHD, autism, all of these things are under that umbrella, anxiety, depression, all of that under the umbrella of this sort of cytokine model, this inflammatory components of these mental health issues. So all of those problems that I mentioned, they're all so different, but they have that common link of chronic inflammation, this sort of forest fire low-grade forest fire burning in perpetuity. That's really what researchers are, are linking to all of these different health problems. So it's it's the breaking of the Goldilocks principle. You know, inflammation is not inherently bad, but you don't want it too high, and you also don't want it too low, But you and you, you just want it just right when you need it. So if you want to, if you have a, a viral infection, you want the immune system to attack that and kill it off, but you want that to calm down. The problem is it's coming up and never going down for a lot of different people. But inflammation exists on a spectrum. And that's what I talk about at length in the inflammation spectrum in, in my book, because people think of it as maybe it's just the egregious sort of autoimmune disease, the obvious diabetes, heart disease, cancer, and it, that's it. Well, no, by the time somebody's diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, that autoimmune disease didn't just start the day before they were diagnosed. By the time somebody's diagnosed with diabetes or heart disease, that didn't start just the day before they were diagnosed. On average, research points to four to 10 years prior to that diagnosis, things were brewing on this inflammation spectrum. That's up to a decade before they're at the doctor's office and their doctor says they have this problem. Wow. So people need to wake up and realize we're none of us are impervious or impenetrable to these health problems. You look at the statistics, we have to do what we can do. We can't control everything, but we get, there's dramatic research showing that largely these health problems are governed by the choices that we make in our life. Uh, so research estimates that our genetics haven't changed in 10,000 years. 99% of our genes haven't changed in 10,000 years. But yet, why do we see this uh, really epidemic rise of these chronic inflammatory health problems in a very short period of time? Well, researchers are looking at this growing mismatch between genetics, our DNA, and epigenetics, our lifestyle things that we're awakening these genetic predispositions that have always been there for 10,000 years, but why are they being triggered like never before? Well, it's the field of epigenetics. It's the lifestyle things we're doing or we're not doing that's awakening these these latent uh, sleeping gene predispositions uh, like never before. So that's what inflammation is. It can look in different ways from one end of the inflammation spectrum, like the low end of it. It's the things like mild fatigue, maybe some bloating, Maybe some anxiety, maybe some uh, depression a little bit, like mild forms of it. Uh, that's on one end of the inflammation spectrum, all the way to the other end of the inflammation spectrum, which is the overt, diagnosable, you know, labeled with a, a official medical label, and then everything in between. But it's important to remember, those health problems didn't just start brewing four to 10 years prior to the diagnosis. By the time it's diagnosable, 
a lot of these autoimmune diseases, a lot of destruction has to happen before it fits conventional medicine's criteria to be even labeled. So for example, autoimmune adrenal disease, Addison's disease, you have to have 90% destruction of your adrenal glands before <clears throat> conventional medicine will call it Addison's disease. Wow. That didn't happen overnight. Similar numbers, 70 to 90%, let's just say, across celiac disease, MS, you have to have 70, 90% destruction of either the villi for, for celiac disease or the myelin sheath for MS to even show up on imaging studies for them to catch it and it's overt and obvious enough to even get the person in the, in the doctor's office for them to say it's, it is what it is. This is not to scare people for the sake of it. This is just to give awareness to the fact that why would you want to wait to that point anyways? And there are many people that will never get diagnosable. They'll never get as bad as what mainstream medicine would like to call it when, when they'll call it something. But that you're going to feel the effects of this autoimmune inflammation spectrum way before that. Uh, with symptoms that are unexplained. And these are the people that I, I really love and I, I spend my time with giving them answers as to what's going on here uh, because it's so important because many people are left to fend for themselves wondering why I feel the way that I do and I'm told, you know, I'm crazy or I, it looks autoimmune but we don't really know what it is or uh, they're just labeling with me with things like IBS, which irritable bowel syndrome, like you said, you already know things were irritable, but why is it irritable? It doesn't explain why. It just It's a, a diagnosis of telling you how you feel. Irritable bowel syndrome, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, those are just labels for how you feel. The, que the question is why? Uh, and that's we have to go upstream to find out what's causing that. And that's going to be different from person to person. Yeah. I want to dig in a little bit deeper to that because one of my favorite things that you, you start like right at the beginning of your book, I'm looking over at your book right now because you start right at the beginning of your book sharing um, about our uniqueness and why it's so important that we take this unique approach to inflammation and to our health just overall. So I'm wondering if you can kind of share it a little bit more into what is bioindividuality and why does a very unique approach matter? Because, you know, we're all humans and I think we can get into this, especially, you know, in the modern medicine world, you know, going like, okay, you have this condition or you have this condition and then you're kind of um, grouped into this person with this condition. But as you, you know, as you go into, into your book, and I know that there are so many, like you were saying, so many like nuances to each person and their condition, even within their condition. So what is this concept of bioindividuality and why is the fact that we are so unique important to this, this whole realm of inflammation? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so true. It, it's very, again, reductionist to say, well, just because you have you know, this labeled with this disease, everybody in this, once you're labeled with a disease in the conventional setting, everybody's given the same medication and it can work for some people and it cause flare ups for other people and, and it will cause, you know, no improvement or decrease, if, you know, it, it, will, it will, will cause a flare up or an improvement of symptoms. It'll just do nothing for some people. So we can't be so oversimplistic to say that this medicinal matching game and the training is in the conventional setting to diagnose the disease and match it with the medication and again it helps some people it's going to maybe provide relief for some people and that's good we're not anti-medication in, in conventional in functional medicine we just ask the question what is your most effective option that causes you the least amount of side effects 
So that's really the question is around anti-medication. I really think there's no doubt about it. You can look at the statistics. There's some people that are alive because of medication. Medication serves its place. Uh, we're not for the, you know, eradication of it from our, our lives. It, it saves people's lives. But it's about being smart. It's about being thoughtful. It's about being judicious. It's about being what's actually the root cause of this. I mean, rarely is somebody actually sick from a medication deficiency, meaning you're not going to like medicate yourself into health one day. That doesn't mean that it doesn't serve a purpose, but okay, if we can get upstream, if we can actually find the root cause, let's do it. You know, and I think we don't even, how can we even say what it is if we're not looking there and we have to know what we're up against to do something about it and for somebody to just just relegate the thyroid like we're using thyroid as an example because it's so common but just saying well high tsh give them synthroid well, well why is it there in the first place why did this already happen would you just give them a synthetic t4 for the rest of their life or you know if someone's in chronic pain just give them the pain medication but why is the pain there is there an autoimmune component? And then if there is an autoimmune component, what's driving the autoimmune component? We don't even really ask the question. They don't even really say it. They, they, they don't even go there. They're just doing this sort of, sort of medicinal matching game. They're giving the appropriate, they're running the basic simple labs to give the basic simple medications that everybody else labeled the same way that you were at were given. That sort of oversimplistic view, again, it's not to say that it, is a complete failure. It's just a lot of people are falling through the cracks of that system. And we're just asking the question in functional medicine, okay, what is the most, what's actually going on here and giving them the time and the space and the thoughtfulness and the due diligence that they deserve. Um, so we're all different and you can have a hundred people going through any number of diagnoses or whether that's, let's just say chronic fatigue syndrome. Okay. Well, why, why is that? Why are they labeled with chronic fatigue? What's causing that? Uh, so is it a hormonal imbalance? Is it some chronic infection? Is it an underlying gut problem? Is it a toxicity issue? Is it like a biotoxin like mold? Is it a heavy metal issue? Is it a confluence of several of those factors? Uh, is it or is it circumstantial? Is it external? Are they just not getting enough sleep? And then why aren't they getting enough sleep? So all of these things need to be looked at instead of just saying you're at chronic fatigue syndrome. Here's that medication. And maybe chronic fatigue is a bad example there because I don't really have many medications for these poor people. But you get my point is the point is that it's a, the people are flippantly labeled and then they're just told to go home and see you later in six months, this is, see you in six months. This is your lot in life. But the reality is many people settle for this bleak existence of feeling lousy uh, and, and just nothing changing, but a growing prescription list more a pile of labs really with nothing to show for it. Cause all of them come back quote unquote normal. We need to realize we need to do something different to see something different. And uh, so that's really my heart is really looking at, okay, who really cares if someone's labeled with a certain diagnosis code? Yes, that's a part of it. But why is it there in the first place? That's really my main primary uh, objective. Yeah. Oh, it's so it's so important. I love that. So. Let's dig in a little bit more then to, okay, if, you know, medications are there if we need them <laughs> and they're there if we really truly need them and we need them to manage symptoms if they're appropriate. Um, and hopefully that's something you work on with your doctor, with your functional medic medicine practitioner, whatever, whoever you're working with. Yeah. But what about food and lifestyle? Because I know, I know <clears throat> this isn't addressed enough in you know, most of our modern medicines. How does food and lifestyle play a role in inflammation? 
Um, every food we eat either feeds inflammation or fights it. There's no benign, innocuous Switzerland meal. Uh, it's doing one or the other. So the, the problem is, like when you talk about the umbrella of real whole foods, right? We know not to eat junk food. Everybody's beyond that, right? I mean, most of my patients, they're eating way cleaner than most Americans, but they're still struggling. So obviously I would assume they're better off than they would be if they weren't doing those things, but it's obviously not enough to just say don't eat junk food, eat real foods, and then it's gonna solve all your problems. Yes, it's gonna be start improving your life in a powerful way, some people more than others, a lot of people in a major way. Food is so primary. Uh, again, it's a modulator of our biochemistry, but under the umbrella of whole foods, what happens when you have gone healthy, you've cleaned up your diet, you may feel a little bit better or a lot better, but not entirely better. And that's where a lot of my work comes into play. It's where the inflammation spectrum kind of comes in as well in the book of just how do we optimize your food medicine plan? How do we, you know, Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine, he said, let food be thy medicine and medicine thy food. <clears throat> and every doctor takes the Hippocratic oath for that reason of really using food as medicine. <clears throat> so uh, that's that's my goal um, is to use food as medicine. Kind of going back to the original Hippocratic oath that doctors, you know, we, we all take the Hippocratic Oath, but the, we need to realize that what medicine was founded upon was using food as medicine. Um, so yes, that's really the goal of the book, the goal of the inflammation spectrum is to find out what your body loves and what your body hates. It's not making too many generalized or broad sweeping statements about this is the magic diet that's gonna solve all your problems. Because if I hung my hat on that one magic diet to solve all your problems, I'd be proven wrong all day long. So I want to really spark a conversation for the person, for the reader in the context of the book. But when I'm consulting patients, obviously it's a bit different. But for the reader, I want them to go through an N equals one, like their own experiment, their own scientific experiment of saying, what's my real life experience on this, these different ways of eating? Uh, making it fun, making it engaging, making it non-punitive or non-restrictive, but just kind of immerse themselves in how to use food as medicine in a really targeted way. So I started the the book out with uh, a quiz, and the quiz is adapted from questions that I ask patients, and then they can find out where they're at on the inflammation spectrum, how severe is inflammation in their body, like where it may be, and then what specific areas of focus should they have, whether maybe it's focusing more on brain health or hormonal health or gut health or musculoskeletal health or detoxification support. There allows them, the, the quiz in the book allows them to choose their own adventure of a, in a way where they can kind of target the things that they need to work on and not work on the things that's completely irrelevant to them. So that's really what the book is meant to have. Because food is such a huge influencer of our biochemistry, again, it's raising inflammation up or bringing it down. It's doing one or the other. Some in negligible ways, but a lot of them are considerable noticeable ways. So we're talking about that in the book. And when we're talking about, you mentioned lifestyle, it's all the other non-food ways that impact inflammation too, because it's not just about food. Uh, it's about, we're talking about stress and sleep and toxins and social isolation and social media addiction and screen time and all these other things that are also influencing inflammation. And this is not to stress somebody out. Like stressing about all this stuff is not good for your health either. This is done in a very open grace, light, 
way. This is not like obsessive. This is not orthorexic. This is, is not like weird, like punitive, dogmatic dieting dogma. You've read the book, you know, that's not my heart on the matter at all. So it's quite uh, appropriate for people to lean into because you have to do something different to see something different. And then we can, we're going over all the studies and the research, but uh, digesting it in a way or putting it in a way that's a really approachable to people. Yeah, I love that you mentioned this. I'm all about holistic health, right? It is so much more than just the food we eat or just the medicine we take, or it is our lifestyle. And that stressing about it is just as detrimental as, you know, maybe not doing anything, maybe not. But, you know, there is that balance of, you know, wanting to lean in to making these improvements for our wellness, but not stressing about it as well. So my background and what I kind of teach right now um, and or, or what my passion is, is this idea of intuitive eating, where, you know, we're not punishing ourselves for not eating a certain way, but we have this freedom around food and finding what feels good for us, which I think some people might argue doesn't match your approach of kind of eliminating foods in order to find Mm -hmm. what works. However, I want to kind of be the devil's advocate here for lack of a better term. I know that's not the best term, but (laughs) as someone who has dealt with major health concerns, I think what you're talking about, this really individualized strategic approach to healing can be really necessary, especially if we're dealing with chronic conditions that we've tried all the things and they haven't worked um, or have just Mm -hmm. been overlooked or just not properly managed by these conventional approaches. So can you explain why this elimination approach is really necessary to finding what works for us when we have these chronic health conditions? Sure. Yeah, it's, I I agree with you in the sense of I'm, I'm a, without a doubt, the goal for everybody is to get them, get them to the place of intuitive eating. There's no doubt about that. But when the body's out of balance, <clears throat> it's really hard to hear intuition. And it's when the body's out of balance, and what I mean by that is inflammation out of balance. It's the immune system out of balance. It's causing disruption of communication in the body and this bi-directional relationship between our thoughts and emotions and our physiology. So when I need to create stillness for people to even hear their intuition, so I want people to eat intuitively, but when you have hormonal imbalance and you have gut microbiome imbalance or you have inflammatory imbalance, you, there will be so much proverbial noise that they will not be able to know and differentiate between intuition and imbalance. So, you know, is it intuition or is it hangriness? Is it intuition or blood sugar roller coaster? Is it intuition or stress eating? Is it intuition? Like there, there, you cannot know when your body is completely in the throes of an inflammatory storm. It's really hard to know what your body actually needs because intuitive eating, their body will oftentimes crave a lot of things that will feed their flare ups. Like their body's craving that sugar. Was well, that really intuition? If something's making you feel horrible afterwards, is that really intuition? Or if they're completely disillusioned as to what's working for them, <clears throat> is that really intuition? We have to undo and calm down the disillusionment to really allow intuition to speak clearly. So that's my goal throughout the whole system in the book is to get clarity, calm things down, to find out what your body loves and what your body hates. That's what intuition is. 
you have to know what your body loves and hates. That's intuition. So intuitive eating isn't just like, well, and I'll just say this, like I want you to have, and this is a whole, this is the last chapter in the book. This is food peace, allowing you to find food peace. And that's the goal. But some people, if they, they, once they have discernment and clarity and food peace, they know what their body loves and hates through the system in the book. Then they'll go and eat something that's not in alignment with what their goals are, but they have the freedom to do so. And then they can see and take the they they have the knowledge of okay, this food isn't the best for me, but I want I want to have it, and that's the grace and the lightness that I want people to have. And then how does that food make them feel? And be introspective and intuitive to that, and honest with themselves. For some people, it's like it's going to be minor. So that food was worth it for them. That's the food piece that I want people to have. For some people, that food will cause a horrible flare-up, and they'll pay for it for weeks on end. That also, for them, that's not worth it. But at least they have the clarity to know that food is the problem, and I'm not disillusioned as to what's working for me and what's not. So you have to get to the place of centeredness to even have intuitive eating. So I I think you and I are coming from that same place. So people can judge like elimination diet approaches but they're not going through what a lot of people are going through. Like that's their journey. Maybe it worked for them where they didn't have to find out what works for their body. Maybe they can just do the 80, 20 rule and like live that way, but that doesn't work for a lot of people. And my goal is to get the people that aren't there to where they're at, but they're blessed and that's awesome for them and they can be there already. That's not, that's not everybody's journey. So, um, I want people to get to the place of having that flexibility of finding, of knowing what works for their body, eating intuitively. Most people aren't there. So I'm trying to get them there. Yeah, I love that. You know, I love your concept too of kind of finding your own personal threshold for these certain foods that could be inflammatory for one person or overall, you know, could something like sugar, we know that eating a lot of sugar is going to be inflammatory overall, but what is our kind of personal threshold for these things? I actually had a friend yesterday ask me, um, I was doing a photo shoot for a course that I have coming up and we were sitting down, like we were eating this, um, this gluten-free meal and she asked me if I always cooked gluten-free And I had to think about it for a second because I'm like, well, no, I don't always cook gluten-free. My husband and kids aren't gluten-free, but I eat primarily gluten-free because that was the first thing to go when I was struggling with my, um, you know, inflammatory gut issues. And so I was gluten-free for a number of years. And then I could add a little bit of, you know, sprouted bread here and there and have some from time to time and not, and not have it, you know, cause any sort of a flare up. But now I just eat gluten-free primarily just because that's how that's what feels good in my body. And I don't even think twice about it. It's not something that's a stress. It's not something that I feel like keeps me from my food freedom. It's something that I'm doing because it feels good for me. And I think that that's a similar place that you're hoping to get people to where they know what their, what their threshold is. Yeah, <clears throat> you're right. Because most people just don't know. And when they have that clarity and that food piece and their discernment, then, then, it's, then it's a personal just relationship, like they've healed their relationship with food, they've healed their relationship with their body, and they can make the adult decision to do whatever they want, to live the life that they wanna live. But most people aren't there yet, so let's get to the place of strength strength and uh, discernment first. Then at that point, then intuitive eating is the way to go, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm wondering if we can go just a little bit deeper into these, um, first of all, why eight (laughs) and these eight areas that people might need to address, these eight areas you talk about in your book. Um, So what are they and 
maybe mm-hmm. just a couple of signs that they might need to be addressed. Yeah. So the, the number eight, um, for people that haven't read the book, it is, it just turned out that a lot of things were coming as I was curating and formulating the book, which I actually started writing the inflammation spectrum before ketotarian. So that's how long I've been working on it. Uh, so because I wanted to get it right. And when I saw were these eight foods, what I call the eliminate, the foods that research points to, uh, I don't have a personal vendetta against these foods, but food research points to these foods being the top potential inflammatory in most people. And again, you may find, hey, I do fine with six of those, but not two of those, or I'm fi- I'm not good with six of those, and I can only eat two of those. So it's everybody's different, or maybe four and four. It's going to be bio-individuality. So I'm not making punitive statements and saying these are bad for all people. Certainly not. But there's the core four foods, which are grains, added sugar, which we just talked about, high omega-6 oils like vegetable oil, canola oil, and conventional dairy. And we have a nuanced conversation about the types of grains and the preparation of grains and the same with dairy and beta A1 and beta A2 casein and goat's milk and like all the variabilities there. So again, there's nuance in all of those conversations. And then the core four track or the people that scored lower on that quiz that I was talking about in the book, uh, where they dealing with some things, but maybe you know, not that severe, but they want to clean up their life and feel better and lower inflammation. So that's the core four track. It's removing those four foods for four weeks and then slowly reintroducing them to find out what their body loves and, and hates. And then the more advanced track is are the, the people that scored higher on that quiz in the book. And when the quiz actually is on the website too. So you, if, if you didn't want to get the book, you can go to drwillcole.com and go to the inflammation spectrum. And we have, we adapted the quiz from the book on the website. But People that scored higher on the quiz would do the eliminate track, which is the core four foods, which you just mentioned, plus four more. So that adds in nightshades, which are peppers, tomatoes, eggplants, goji berries, white potatoes, some spices, and then uh, legumes, beans, lentils, things like that, nuts and seeds, and eggs. Especially the the eliminate track, which the core four people can kind of get behind of like, okay – Sugar, tons of bread, maybe not the best thing for people. High omega-6 oils like canola oil isn't the best for people. But the eliminate track adds those plus those four foods that I just mentioned. Those are all real foods like nightshades, legumes, nuts and seeds, eggs. And I do fine with most of those foods, but a lot of people don't. So I want them to find out what their body loves. Again, I, I don't have a personal uh, problem with it, but the lectins, the phytic acid, the albumin in the eggs, the the alkaloids in the nightshades can be problems. These food proteins can be problematic because of people's disrupted unhealthy guts or their autoimmune reactivity or both, obviously. We can kind of look at bio-individuality when it comes to those foods. So that's removing those eight foods for eight weeks, and then we reintroduce them again. You may find out you do fine with five of them, but not the three. But by avoiding the three, you feel fantastic. And all the while during those eight weeks, we're not just talking about food. We're talking about stress and toxins and sleep and screen time and social media addiction, all these other things that can drive inflammation levels too. So the conversation that I'm having in the book isn't just about food, but food is a central point because everybody eats. So we want to look at the impact that how food can be medicine for the individual. Um, so, and then we, the reintroduction is just as important as the elimination part of it. So you can see and test each food and see how you feel. Um, and we do it in such a systematic way that it's not going to be a matter of, 
you know, you're like confused as to what works for your body. It's, it's it'll be very obvious for you. Oh, this, this doesn't make me feel as good. And avoiding that food at that point isn't punitive or restrictive or orthorexic, obsessive. It's no, I would rather feel better than I miss that food. And that's that grace and lightness that I want people to infuse in their life and infuse in their meals. So diet is dieting isn't this sort of a, a very source of shame and guilt. It's really not about that at all. So that's that's really what we do in the book. Yeah, it's about nourishing yourself and wanting to feel good. And I know yeah. that's that's a that's a place that I have found so much freedom in getting to. And so I, I really appreciate that for sure. So I'm curious. So there might be someone listening, and I've read the book, so I know kind of your answer behind this, but there might be somebody listening who's like, well, can I just go and get tested for all of these? And mm. can I just do these food intolerance tests? What will that tell me? Um, why are or are not these tests effective in this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I'm not a fan of those tests as a baseline. Because what happens is that a lot of foods will come back positive invariably, and you're, it's going to be lots of foods will be in the reds and the yellows on those labs, and no matter what lab you're talking about, for a lot of people. This isn't everybody, but this is a lot of people. And then that feeds into the anxiety and stress, like, what the heck? I can't have all these vegetables. I can't have all these fruits. I can't have all these meats. I get all this stuff. That's less to do with those foods. Less to do about them and more to do with the intestinal permeability, the leaky gut syndrome, the overreaction of the immune system, more to do with that and less about the foods. So I find that those foods at the beginning, so what are you supposed to do based on a snapshot in time whenever you got that lab on a Tuesday morning, whenever you collected the lab, you're supposed to base your whole diet off of that snapshot in time because my assumption is if you went back and did that lab again the next day or the next week, you would see different foods being positive. So it's not really helpful to like base your months and weeks off of the snapshot in time. And you, and honestly, it feeds into people's stress and orthorexia, I think, a lot of times too, because they think I can eat nothing but air and ice cubes and low lectin bark and <laughs> goodwill <laughs> to make it through the day. And it's not healthy. It's not a good, healthy relationship with food. So my, when I see a food sensitivity test like that, and that's fine, people want to run them, my objective my perspective on this and this isn't just my opinion this is most of us to functional medicine we would see that it's more of a improve we need to improve the gut health and calm the inflammation down first more and that's the clinical objective not avoiding all these foods so i don't find this very practical in determining like real life breakfast lunch and dinners uh, decisions and it's important to know too there's different pathways there's food intolerances food sensitivities food allergies I mean, a lot of times people get these food sensitivity tests or food reactivity tests, and they think whether that's the doctor that's running them and they're not explaining it, or they're doing the at-home kits and they're not being really explaining it, and they equate that with allergies, and then they go and avoid those foods forever and ever, amen, thinking, I got that food sensitivity test two years ago, but they're calling it an allergy test, and they think they're like allergic. So it's, again, it's you it's a context matters and i think it's important to know like what actually is going on here and oftentimes when you see lots of foods being positive on these tests whether that's direct to consumer or a integrative or functional medicine doctor running them it's more to do with the leaky gut syndrome or the intestinal permeability and the inflammation less to do with the random you know spinach that showed up being positive on there or whatever food strawberries that's being positive on that test yeah, it's all about that underlying that's going on. Mm -hmm. That root cause, again, yeah. 
No, I know for myself that I've had plenty of those tests done over the years to try and figure out what was going on with my gut health. And it really was taking a step back and going, okay, what is really creating these issues? What is the root cause? And how do I lower my inflammation overall? And then, you know, a lot of those foods that Mm -hmm. came up on those tests then I am perfectly fine with now. Things like lemons came up on my tests and, you know, things like, um, what else was on there? Bell peppers that I couldn't have. And I'm okay with nightshades, but I'm not okay with white potatoes. I am very, very sensitive to white potatoes and that hasn't gone away. But if I had just eliminated like this, like dozen foods that had come up, it caused a lot of stress for me. And a lot of my background is orthorexia and obsessing over my, you know, quote unquote health. And it was to the detriment of my health. But having that real clarity um, was really it was um, that it was more of the underlying what are the things I need to do every single day to make me feel good? Um, How can Mm -hmm. I get in tune with my body that intuition go, okay, something's feeling off. How do I approach this in a positive way that really kind of um, helped things for me? And I know I'm sure for um, a lot of your of your patients as well. Yeah, and that's uh, to that uh, point real, real fast. Is that th- that's not to say that later on down the line, a food sensitivity test, if people wants to run them, it may be appropriate. Then it may mm-hmm. be like the two random foods that you never would have known without that lab. So, yeah. like I'm for when it's uh, clinically appropriate, I'm for this food sensitivity testing. I just don't think it's helpful for somebody in the throes of inflammation to run it as and determine their whole diet and. We talk about cross-reactivity labs in the book too. Like there's some exceptions of people with celiac and, um, you know, different autoimmune issues that foods that mimic gluten, like this sort of molecular mimicry that goes on for some people. Those are like there are certain food sensitivity testing that I do think could be helpful for certain people. I just don't think because it's so common right now for people to get them done that you're right. It's like, okay, is it the lemon's fault or, you know, what's going on here? Um, Yeah. So I just wanted to clarify that there is a place for them, but I don't think everybody needs them. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you for clarifying that, too, because they have been helpful for me in ways, too, to determine things. Like, I would not have known that I had this random issue with white potatoes, but now I know I can physically feel them affecting me. That's just an example of something that seems kind of silly to me, because a lot of people, unless they have overall nightshade issues, haven't had the same issue as I have. Um, So, yeah, no, I thank you for clarifying that, because, yeah, it can be appropriate. But I think that would, in my opinion, that would be why you would, that would be something you would do while working with the functional medicine practitioner. I think that mm-hmm. that's my personal opinion would be yeah. if you're if you're you know going through this maybe you've gone through your book and you're feeling good but there's something that's still going on that's when you would go okay yeah. I need to bring a professional in and help guide me through this rather than blindly following it yourself because I think that's when right. we do start to go crazy over these things. Yeah. Yeah, I totally right. And then it's like disillusionment and you're almost like shooting in the dark trying to get it to make sense. But you're right. I think that's the order of operations that makes the most sense for most people. Mm-hmm. So what if you have someone that you are working with one-on-one and they're feeling a little bit crazy around, you know, eliminating these foods and they're feeling stressed out? What is your advice as a functional medicine doctor to not go crazy when they're really trying to eliminate these foods and find what works? Well, I think, first of all, you have to remind yourself why you're doing what you're doing. And the conversation I'm having throughout the book, and because it's a conversation that I have with my patients, is what is your ethos? What is the reason why you're actually doing this? So this isn't about being restrictive for the sake of it. This is about loving your body enough to feel great. And something that I talk about in 
both of the books is you can't heal a body you hate. You cannot shame your way into health and wellness. You cannot stress and strive your way into health and wellness. So all of this has to come from an air of grace and lightness. And to me, if it's not coming from that place, it's going to be short-lived or can be completely a source of misery. So I really want patients to come in with that heart and intention into the choices they're making over the coming weeks if they're doing this this approach. Um, so I would say that's number one. Number two, lean into it. As long as you're progressing, even if you're progressing slower than you think, who cares? Like this is a journey. You don't have to be perfect overnight. As long as you're just leaning into these things and progressing, I'm all right with that. And there's a whole chapter. It's called Initiate for that re- reason. We're just leaning into things. We're just we're not doing all the things all at once. You don't have to be super health connoisseur all at once. Just start off slow, lean into it, and you know whether that's on your own, and I think that's the brilliance of a book, whether that's mine or somebody else's, you can do it on your own uh, and be self-paced. But like you said, maybe that's, maybe you do need someone outside of yourself because it's hard when you are in the throes of not feeling well to do this alone. So whether that is a health coach or a functional medicine practitioner or somebody, somebody even a friend to do it with, I think that to not be totally isolated is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I very much agree with that. It can be really hard when you're going about it totally alone and feeling like you're the only one. But I think what Mm -hmm. you're talking about, too, is that this is so common in so many different areas. Like there are so many different conditions that are affected by inflammation. There's probably somebody else out there you can talk to and you can, you know, whether it is a practitioner or it's just a friend who you're like, hey, I heard that you were going through this stuff. Maybe we can maybe we can talk about this. And there's some solidarity solidarity in that. And that, Yeah. yeah. A lot of us are going through inflammation yeah. issues. I think just living in our modern world, there's a lot of inflammation mm-hmm. issues that are that yeah. are popping up. Yeah, there's so many support groups online too. Like if you don't want to go to the professional sort of clinical side of things, with, uh, like we like we do, there's so many groups. There's so many online groups that um, I know because I get tagged in them on social media. I see them. I'm like, wow, there's so many people going through this, but they're creating communities online. And I think that's the good part of social media. I think that's a good part of the internet is that they can connect people that are otherwise disconnected, uh, that are going through heavy things. Um, so I think that's, that's good to find people that are like-minded on the same goal that will edify you, uh, and provide an outlet. Uh, so you're not totally isolated because autoimmunity and a lot of these problems we're talking about are very, very isolating because you quote unquote look normal on the outside but people don't know what it takes to get through the day. And I think that, that having that lifeline is really important. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. I know that we are all individuals. We've talked about this a ton, the bioindividuality. So you don't need to go into too much detail here if you don't care to. But I'm really curious for you, how does this look like in your everyday life? So how do you practice some of these principles with food, with lifestyle, um, in you know these tools in your toolbox in your everyday life? Yeah. So I intermittent fast in the morning, like I, I mentioned. I don't do that every day. And I don't, I don't, it's not like it's something I will or really obsess about. I just kind of eat when I'm hungry. And the more metabolically flexible you are or anybody is, the more they their eating window tends to be a little bit tighter, um, the, the, the hours that they eat. So I'll typically break my fast around noon after like Earl Grey tea, maybe some organic coffee, maybe some green tea. Um, I'll, I have this... Um, 
I normally drink Peak Tea, which is uh, friends of mine, but P-I-Q-U-E. I love their variety of teas because they're just tea crystals in these little sachets and you pour them in. And for the people that don't even want to wait, wait for tea to steep, it's already there mm-hmm. for you. For the tea aficionados out there, you will appreciate Peak Tea because I, 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 am, I am a tea junkie for sure. And then the way that I eat is is ketotarian. It's a very ketotarian way of eating. It's my preference of eating, and I do a cyclical approach. I'll increase my carbs when I want to. It's not a big deal, but you have to have metabolic flexibility to do that um, because I, once I go intermittent fasting, I will get into ketosis again. It's not something where I have to be always in ketosis. So what I advocate for people in ketotarian, my first book, is to gain metabolically flexibility, metabolic flexibility to burn fat and burn sugar when you want to. And have, again, that grace and lightness to not always be in sugar-burning, hangry mode all the time that many people will find themselves on. So it's that's typically what I eat. It's, it's a mostly plant-based diet, uh, high healthy fat, moderate protein, lower carbohydrate diet. Uh, but again, when I want to increase sweet potatoes or increase fruit or have a smoothie, then I'll have it and then go back into ketosis. So that's typically my food regimen. It's... it's um, explained in ketotarian and um yeah so then i as far as like other activities that i like to do i love my peloton bike i typically if i do it i'll do it in the morning before i go see patients or it on the like obviously the weekend i'll I'll do it as well um or when i get home in the evening so i love my peloton but i mix it up so i do like body weight burst training hit training free weights and Peloton do not always do the same thing. Um, yeah, so that's my activity, and I like spending time with my kids. I have a th- 13-year-old son, 10-year-old daughter, my wife, and my two golden doodles. <laughs> I, I live a pretty simple life, so I come home, we just hang out, and go back seeing patients. Like, you know, we go back to work. So, yeah, that's my life. Oh, I love that. I also love the Peloton. I've just started using the Peloton a couple months ago, and it's a bit addictive. It's kind of hard to go and do something else because it's (laughs) not in in an unhealthy way, but in a it's really fun. And I love any sort of exercise that makes me feel good. And that's fun. And I want to move. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's a good cathartic sweat. It's like just good. It's positive. Mm -hmm. It's a positive thing. So I have I have one more question regarding sort of family life, but I'm curious, just kind of, um, I know a lot of people are really curious about this idea of intermittent fasting, and it's very big in the media, and I'm very careful to, you know, I wouldn't recommend it to the clients that I work with are really trying to heal their relationship with food. So in those early stages of healing your relationship with food, it is not appropriate to restrict your eating in any way in terms of, you know, even time restricted. But aside from that, you know, that population, do you think mm-hmm. intermittent fasting is something that's appropriate for everyone, um, you know, women and men? Or is there, you know, other than, you know, that that population who might be dealing with kind of disordered eating? Um, what do you think in terms of intermittent fasting mm-hmm. as kind of a broad sweeping recommendation? I think if it's done right for that person, I mean, it's again, going back to my earlier statement of context matters. I think that you're right. Some people, they don't need to worry about it. They need to be working on other things in their health journey, and that's not their primary focus. But, you know, there are very loose time-restricted feeding windows that are still technically, you'll get a lot of the benefits, lighter benefits, but that may be the perfect thing for you at that point because you're doing all these other amazing things. So this is another tool in your toolbox. So like an eight to six window 
meaning you eat between 8 a.m. and 6 p.m., that's technically a time-restricted feeding window because you're just not eating too late and you're allowing your body to fast as you sleep at night until you break the fast in the morning. So if anybody, and obviously talk to your professional or your doctor or your eating disorder specialist about this, but you know that's pretty basic advice there to just not eat too late. It's, it's avoiding the binging in the middle of the night. It's actually a, quite a positive thing and it's allowing your body to fast as you're sleeping and then you wake up and have your breakfast in the morning. So that's technically a time-restricted feeding window, but that's not your focus. It's just kind of not eating too late and making sure you're well satiated, eating nutrient-dense foods. So any sort of intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding window, it's not punitive. It's not an eating disorder, you know, disguised as a wellness practice. That's not the goal of this. And if you're coming from that place, drop it. It's not, it's not worth it. Don't make it sound like nicer by calling it like a health practice euphemism. It should just, you really, that's not what we're talking about here. So the goal of this is just to tap into these health benefits, whether that's autophagy that I talked about earlier or the anti-inflammatory or the uh, fasting increases ketosis. So you get sort of the fat burning brain, uh, cognitive enhancement, uh, component of it. But if it's not coming from a healthy place, drop it. So it's a tool for people who are ready to pick it up. But even if people, they, they shouldn't necessarily pick up the heaviest version of it pick up the lightest version of it, pick up the eight to six window and just uh, eat between 8am and 6pm all day long. That's, that's technically a TRF. And then for people that want to pick up a little bit heavier, then go to like a 12 to six window, like eat between 12 and six. They want a little bit more than that. They can do like um, every other day fast for a week. You know uh, that that there's deeper ways and there's simpler ways to do it. I talk about it at length in Ketotarian so they can kind of know the different options for people. Mm, yeah, thank you for clarifying that. I think it's it's really refreshing to hear that this is a tool that you can use. It might not work for every well, it'll work, but it might not be appropriate for everyone. Yeah. But it is just a tool and there's different ways that you can do it. It's it doesn't have to be rigid where there is only one way to do it. I know that my husband feels really good intermittent fasting. And it's just something that comes natural to him. Like he just yeah. stops eating at a certain time at night and then just eats again in the morning when he's hungry. And some mornings he's not hungry until noon. And for me, I'm yeah. like, that's that's really difficult for me because I'm hungry in the morning and I'm yeah. going to honor that yeah. and I'm going to eat in the morning. And yeah. so, but, you know, so we're very different in that way. But right. rather than, you know, judging him for it, going, no, he's leaning into something that works for him and that's good for his body. And so, yeah, yeah I appreciate that there's different ways that, that you can go about that. Surely. So I know you just mentioned that you're a dad yourself. Um, so how do you apply these general principles of health? Obviously not intermittent fasting, but like how do you apply these general principles of health and reducing inflammation to your family? How do you kind of approach what you know as a functional medicine doctor with your kids and kind of with your family as a whole? Uh, you just have to, we obviously as parents know our kids and we all have different kids with different souls and different ways that they receive things and different preferences when it comes to food. So you have, you have to obviously know your kid first because my advice for my kid isn't necessarily going to be a, the best thing for your kid. Uh, so honor that wisdom and don't try to just compare and do something because you're hearing somebody else do it. Um, but the overall tenant of it, I think is applicable to any parent and that's having, making food fun and making a, grace and lightness to food and not be this obsessive thing where you know you're saying well these foods are bad or shaming people that eat 
you know, differently than you, that's not going to be good. So I, but I do feel like making it age appropriate, educating your kids on the impact that foods have on our health and letting them know where their foods come from, letting them know the health benefits of certain foods, focus on all the things they can have. I think that to me is as long as it's age appropriate and you're not like overwhelming them or making it obsessive, I think that this approach is a really, really good approach. More Americans need to do it and needs to be taught in schools because many people don't even know like what even health food, healthy food is or how to do it, like getting them in the kitchen and having them be a part of that whole process um, and, and finding healthy alternatives for things that they love. You know, if, if they like this certain cupcake, you know, at school that they had, like find like maybe an almond flour cupcake that's, that's sweetened with maple syrup or honey instead of like the white powdered stuff. And that to me is they could still have that cupcake that's still sweet, that's still sugary, but it's a way better alternative. Uh, and that applies to anything that they're having with their breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I would ask, is there a better alternative to their breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Because we live in an awesome time where there are there's going to be alternatives for that. And there may be alternatives that are more expensive. Um, and you kind of have to look at your budget on if that's appropriate or not for you. But, you know, this is your kid's health. I would say you want to might want to look at different areas where you're spending on that are less important than your kid's health. So and that's maybe kind of a harsh statement, but we have to look at we as a, as Westerners spend money on things that are very frivolous. And I think that we don't really value sometimes the amount of money that we're spending on food where you look at other countries, you look at their percentage of their income and how much money you're spending on food. They're actually spending way more than we spend in America. But but junk food is very cheap in the United States. So we're not used to spending a lot of money on food. But this is actually really important because this is your kid's body and health. And again, this is an obsessive or shaming any parent, but this is just questioning, you know, and really coming in from a place of, I want to do the best I can with the access I have, with the budget I have, and that's enough. And I teach patients how to do this in Aldi and Costco, and Sam's Club, and Walmart. You don't have to be wealthy to eat healthy uh, at all, at all. Most of my patients aren't that. So it's just about being smart and knowing where, where, you're, where to buy things. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm nodding my head over here. You can see me because there's, yeah, there's, <laughs> I think I agree with with everything you said. And um, I have a daughter who has a pretty severe food sensitivity to corn. And we've had to, she's my six-year-old, so she's in school now. So we've really had to navigate, like, choosing the best options for her that feel good in her body that aren't going to trigger her sensitivity. But she also feels like a normal kid. I know she said to me the other day, it was so funny. We're sitting at dinner and she's like, it was a good day today. No one made fun of me for eating weird things at lunch. And I'm oh. like... <laughs> I'm like, do you feel bad about eating weird things at lunch? Do you think what you eat is weird? She's like, no, I like it. And I'm like, okay, well, then we're good. And I mean, I'm putting things like, you know, little like energy balls in her lunch and she eats carrots and like a homemade hummus or a pesto or something like that. So it's nothing. I don't consider it weird, but it is different than the norm. But as long as she's feeling comfortable with that and, you know, for things like birthdays she we do simple meals cupcakes because i'm not i'm a i'm a chef not a baker so and that's a good you know it's an almond flour base there's no corn in that and so yeah i agree with that we can introduce Mm -hmm. those things to our kids we can find what 
what works, but choose that kind of choose that better option. And I totally, yeah. totally agree that there that you don't need to be wealthy to live a healthy life. I talk all about, you know, we shop at Aldi quite often. You don't have to shop at Whole Foods. You can kind mm-hmm. of find what what works for you. So I love yeah. all that. Thank you for all of that advice, yeah. Dr. Dr. Cole. Of course. of course. Thank you. So do you have any just kind of final words of wisdom for the listener who might be struggling with inflammatory symptoms? Just maybe encouragement for where do they even start? Well, I would say, obviously, I think people that are listening to your show have opened their minds and their hearts to doing things differently. I think that's really a great thing. So they've already made the first step, even if they didn't know it, because they wouldn't have listened this far into this episode without <laughs> having a heart to learning, learning and opening themselves up to new things. So I think that you've already started and it's just a matter of how do you lean into it from here? And I think that we have a lot of free content on online. You can go to drwillcole.com. If you don't want to do anything that costs anything, the, the quiz is online for free. There's a lot, hundreds and hundreds over the past 11 years of written articles about these things. You can get all this access information for free. Um, if the book is a great resource, if you want that, you can get that on Barnes and Noble, Amazon. You don't need another doctor. You don't need another anybody if you just want to like start learning for yourself. Um, and I think just like digging into this functional medicine stuff, I think is a great first step. If they've never sort of asked these questions before every patient that I've seen started out their journey like that, they started asking questions, educating themselves, empowering themselves, leaning into what you can digest at that time. Cause we live in a time where it's so much content on content with this endless vortex of information. It's sometimes okay to just put it down and rest in what you've learned and be okay with not knowing all this stuff all at once. So going back to this grace and balance and lightness aspect of all this information that you're about to uncover for yourself, that I think that it's okay to just pause and go away from it and live your life and not always be um, thinking about it either. So you have to find a balance. And um, yeah, and if we, we offer webcam consultations for people around the world at drwillcole.com. So if people want, they can... We have free health evaluations to see if a consultation with me would be appropriate. So they can start. That's free as well. So just some starting points people can lean into uh, whatever is appropriate for them. Awesome. So I have three final sort of rapid fire questions I like to ask every guest. Um, And because I love sharing food in a way that's joyful and I'm a foodie at heart, my first two are about food. So the first one is, what is your favorite thing to cook if you're cooking in the kitchen? Um, I would say I love these avocado fries in Ketotarian. They're my favorite just because I like to eat them more than anything. (laughs) The cooking is okay, but like the eating them is the fun part for me. So like they're uh, avocado fries uh, crusted with um, almond flour and this chipotle aioli uh, dressing. Super yummy. Uh, So that's probably my favorite snack um, that I like cooking. Sounds so good. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I love any sort of aioli. So anything you can dip in an aioli is it. so good. Me too. Like sweet potato fries with aioli. Is so yes. Good yeah. So yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then what is your favorite thing to either order if you're going to go out to a restaurant or have someone cook for you? Um, that's a good question. So I will typically have, I love fish, so I like like a wild caught salmon with like awesome like 
you know, I've been liking a lot lately is sort of these Asian inspired dishes that my wife has made. Um, I actually think that they were from like Green Chef or one of those you know, companies that sends you the food and like the bags and we make them. I think that's where they actually came from, but they're really yummy and they um, are all ketotarian, meaning that they're wild caught fish sort of with lots of healthy fats, uh, omega fats with lots of stir fries and like these coconut amino dressings. I've I just been liking that. Um, it's obviously a, a gluten-free and grain-free option to the soy sauce, but it's sort of the Asian-inspired uh, fish sauté that I, I like. Yeah. Oh, I love coconut aminos. That's something I discovered yeah. back when I was gluten-free, full-time yeah. gluten-free, and uh, we love them. We use them all the time in our kitchen. So, yeah. Yeah, great. So the last question I have, and I'm going to modify it a little bit for you because um, so you're actually the only the only the second guest on my podcast who's a man. The first one was my husband. We're going to have more men come on, <laughs> but because we have you know because in the Healthy Balance Mama podcast we've had a lot of moms come yeah. on. So now we're having you know you're the second dad who's come on. I'm, like, um, I just, I'm following in good footsteps. I'm following in good footsteps after your husband. Yes, so. <laughs> he is not a health expert. He's a professional sailor, but he came on to talk about our health journey. That's all. Awesome. Um, but so what I like to call, we talk about something, what I like to call your beautiful balance. We'll just call mm -hmm. it your balance for you, but it is, it's, it's this beautiful place of, you know, finding what works in your life. So it's going beyond this, you know, obsessing over food, but finding nourishment and also pleasure in food and in life. So what does balance mean to you? Balance for me is really leading from a place of using self-care as a form of self-respect. So to me, if I'm leading from that place, and the analogy that I use in the infl inflammation spectrum is if we saw ourselves like a, as a Tesla versus an old beat-up car, how would we park? How would we fuel ourselves? You know, I mean, Teslas are electric, but I mean, you know, you get what I mean. Maybe a nice, whatever, high-end car that you think of. How would you fuel yourself? How would you drive? How would you take care of yourself? Um, and most people see themselves as like a beat-up junk car, uh, and they're treating themselves accordingly. And you can't, like I said, you can't heal a body you hate. You cannot heal a body you disrespect and you don't respect. So to me, I think the genesis of sustainable wellness is born out of realizing what an awesome, valuable creation and human that you are. And how, and from that will the ripple effect of that will be random acts of wellness. You know, I eat because I eat these awesome foods because I respect myself. I go and do these movements and sweat because I respect myself. I go and give myself quiet time or stillness or walk out in nature because I respect myself. So that to me has to be the core, the ethos of what propels you into these things of wellness that we're talking about. Uh, random acts of wellness and self-respect. I love it. So, so great. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Dr. Cole. This was an incredible conversation full of so much information. I, I cannot wait for the listener to dig in. So you already shared about your website where they can, you know, work with you if um, that's yeah. what they're looking for and then your books as well. And we will link to all of that. So thank you cool. so much for being on and chatting with me today. Oh my, it was an awesome conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Healthy Balance Mama podcast. If you loved it, would you take a screenshot and share it with a friend over on Instagram and tag me in it? 
It helps me so much to know what you love and are taking away from each episode. If you really loved it, would you hop over to iTunes and give me a star rating and review? Every rating and review helps this podcast be seen and heard by more women who need to hear the message of balance and wellness without deprivation. It's the best free gift you could give me. And as a reminder, the information and opinions on this podcast are meant for education and inspiration only and are not to be taken as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult with a trusted practitioner before making any changes. Have a beautiful day, friend, and I'll see you in the next episode.